morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Well, I want to say thanks to Clint for uh, stepping in. Brandon, Brandon had the week off for vacation, and so thank you to Clint and, and uh, his good friend JJ uh, visiting us for the very first time, but also on the drums this morning. So we are really grateful for JJ sharing his gifts with us as well. We're going to be singing um, more at, after we spend some time together in God's Word. So if you're thinking that was a pretty short worship set, well, it was. But that was intentional. We're going to kind of save most of our music for uh, celebration after we have enjoyed the table together as a church family and after we've enjoyed the word together. So you ready for that? All right. Well, we're going to head in that direction. And last Sunday, church family, was Resurrection Sunday here at IBC, but not just here, all over the world. More than 2 billion people celebrated the glorious truth that Jesus is alive that he is risen from the dead, that he's conquered the grave, and that he's victor over sin and hell. Two-plus billion people celebrated that. And it was an extra special weekend for us here uh, at IBC. Many of you commented to me about that time that we shared last time. One person's words in particular kind of stuck with me when they said, I wish it didn't have to end. And we had shared together Good Friday service and then out at Inspiration Point and then our services here with the brunch and all of that. And I wish it didn't have to end, you know, and I felt the same way. And maybe you did too. I didn't want our collective celebration of the resurrection of Jesus to, to end. Not that it really ends, right? I mean, it doesn't really end since every day through faith in Jesus, we live in the, in the truth and the power and the love of a risen Savior. So it really doesn't end. But still, I, like my friend, wasn't ready to stop riding the wave of momentum that we had uh, been able to share together uh, in that way. And then the thought occurred to me, hey, wait a minute, you're the lead pastor here. (laughs) And our celebration of Jesus and his power over the grave doesn't have to end just because it's not Easter Sunday, right? You have the power to direct that in another way. You can make the wave go longer and our ride lasts longer in terms of resurrection truth and so that's what we're going to do this morning church family i decided that uh, we would just uh, spend a little bit more time with the truth of a resurrected savior and one who has the power over the grave really that's what we want to share together today so what do you say you want to join me for another another sunday together around those themes uh do you have a choice no, you, you really don't have a choice at all. But uh, come along with me anyway, and let's go together to the 11th chapter of John's Gospel. New Testament, fourth book in the New Testament, uh, John chapter 11, and let's crash a funeral together this morning. That's, certain, that's uh, something that's normally not done in our culture. It's not done really in any culture, but together let's do that. John chapter 11. Uh, Jesus, it's all about Jesus interrupting a funeral, and you already got a sense of that from what Robin read for us a moment ago. So John chapter 11, if you need a, a Bible this morning, you got out of the house without yours, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word. And then there's a little insert in your bulletin. If you wouldn't mind grabbing that as well, that might be of some help along the way. While, while you're kind of getting settled in there a little bit, let me tell you about a rather unusual company that is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, where it has been making its services available to people 
since 1972. The company is called the Alcor Life Extension Foundation. And right now, 144 people have paid their money and placed their trust in the idea that modern science will one day engineer a way to bring dead people back to life. At Alcor, the bodies of these 144 persons have been placed into these stainless steel cylinders and frozen in liquid nitrogen at minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit. Perfect, huh? Is that what somebody said? So clients pay $200,000 to have their entire body frozen or $80,000 to have just their head frozen, <laughs> hoping that, no, this is the truth, hoping that molecular technology will one day enable uh, scientists to grow a whole new body from the head or from the cells. And this all sounds like science fiction, but I'm telling you, it's not. It's the science of cryonics. And, and as of right now, more than 1,000 people who are still alive have reserved their, their place at Alcor. They've paid their money up front. As you might imagine, cryonics has its share of skeptics and critics. Its website actually even cautions, if you go to the website, it cautions potential customers saying that they really don't even know if the technology will work. They say that right there on their site, but clearly some believe that it will. Well, today, from John's 11th chapter, we are reminded that there is a foolproof, 100% certain way to lay hold of a life that will last forever. And it's not found in Arizona. <laughs> but it's found in a person by the name of Jesus. Jesus will say in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, standing outside the tomb of a dear, dear friend, he will say, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe it, church? Yes. yes. On your note page, when Jesus crashes this funeral, five things happen. So rather than invest $200,000 in Alcor and be bitterly disappointed, what do you say we invest a few moments in John chapter 11 and there be incredibly encouraged and who knows, perhaps even someone's eternity will be changed, huh? Let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. And Lord, our, our Bibles are open. They're laying in our laps and, and we are mindful that what we're holding in our hands is your heart on the printed page. That makes this the most special uh, book in, in the universe. It is your truth. It is your love expressed to us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for putting the, the, the heart of the Father onto the page. And I would ask you now to just allow us to share its riches, to be encouraged by it, to be challenged by it, to be reminded that uh, our Lord Jesus is a risen Savior today. We want to share the word to bring glory and honor to you and to better equip us to live and serve you. So this is your time. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Over the years, celebrities and notable persons have tried to put a humorous touch on the subject of death and dying. One such person has said, 
I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> Another has said, the most reliable way to get praise is to die. And there's truth in that. An observant person once noted, the patient is not likely to recover who makes the doctor his heir. Ah, the light goes on. Ah, and it was the comedian George Burns, and you got to maybe be a little bit older to appreciate that name. But George Burns, he lived to be a hundred years old. He said, "If you live to the age of one hundred, you have made it, because very few people die after the age of one <laughs> hundred." Now, what are these? These are attempts to deal lightheartedly with a subject that usually makes the heart heavy, the subject of dying and death. Did you know, church family, that two people die every second in the world? Two people every second. That in the time that we're together for an hour and 15 minutes, 10,800 people around the world will die and that in the course of this, this one day, 173,000 men, women, and children will take their last breath. That's a lot of funerals, isn't it? That's a lot of funerals. Every day, 365 days a year. Well, on a day in early spring, as Jesus is ministering on the far side of the Jordan River, about a day's travel by foot, from Jerusalem, death comes to him. And he and his disciples will soon be attending a funeral, the funeral of a very dear friend, Lazarus. And they're joined by his two sisters, Martha and Mary. These were special people in his life. They live in this little village called Bethany, according to verse 1. It's only about two miles to the east of Jerusalem. And Bethany was kind of uh, a home away from home. For Jesus, When he was in the Jerusalem area, he would stay with Lazarus, uh, Martha, and Mary. Uh, they were dear family friends, and so he would enjoy their hospitality, their friendship, as he did ministry. Well, Lazarus falls critically ill, life or death kind of an ill. He's not just got the sniffles. He is deathly ill. The two sisters waste no time sending someone to track Jesus down. They know perhaps better than any the power that Jesus has to deal with the blind, the deaf, the mute, the crippled. They've seen him work miracles. Uh, they've seen his power. They know that this is what their brother needs. He doesn't need a doctor. Lazarus needs Jesus. In verse 3, they say to the runner, Stop for nothing. You find Jesus as quickly as you can. And they tell the runner exactly what to say when they find Jesus. Tell him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They don't say to the runner, tell Jesus that Lazarus, the one who loves you, is sick. That's not what they say. That was true. Lazarus did love Jesus. But that misrepresents the moment. They rely on the love that Jesus has for Lazarus and for them, verse 5. They rely on his love for them to be the only reason needed to compel Jesus to make this, this trip back to Bethany. Now, just as a sidebar here, just, just kind of step out of the moment and just think about this. Aren't you glad to know, brothers and sisters, that, 
that Jesus doesn't respond to us on the basis of our love for him. Aren't you glad that is true today? That it's, it's not our love toward him. Uh, it, it's, it's his love for us. That's what it's all about. It does not. It, it reminds me of Romans 5, 8. Uh, we'll put it up on the screen for you. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, what happens? Christ dies for us. How does God demonstrate his love for us? While we're, while we're still sinners and running away from him, living in rebellion and unbelief, God sends his son to die for us. We don't respond to God. God doesn't respond to us because we love him. He loves us and we respond to that. What a great truth. The one you love, Jesus, is sick. The messenger arrives and Jesus is not the least bit caught off guard by the arrival of this this messenger. He already knows, of course, because he is God. He knows Lazarus' condition. He knows exactly what the situation is. But verse 4 says, When Jesus heard this, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Oh, that every Christian, all of us in this room, could truly get our hearts and our minds around this one verse. Oh, that every follower of Jesus could could really put to death the utterly false notion that God always and in every circumstance wants his people to be healthy and strong and fit and whole and never sick and never critically ill and their lives never threatened. Would that we would get that truth, church. That is such a short-sighted, temporal, in-the-moment false perspective that is held by many well-intentioned Christians and it is preached from many pulpits today that God wants us always to be healthy and not ill or sick or have our lives threatened. It's just not true, is it? Could Jesus be more clear than he is in verse 4? Suffering, illness, physical affliction, life-threatening disease, infections, impairments, disabilities can and do fit squarely within the perfect purposes of God for his people. The people that he what? That he loves. That's right. These afflictions result in God's greater glory, Jesus says, because they encourage a greater faith within the afflicted a greater faith within those who love the one who is afflicted. They develop tougher, more resilient servants for the Lord as they endure these physical struggles because it's not really about them. There's a bigger picture than them. Their affliction brings glory to God. God can and does often get more glory from our suffering than he does from our wellness. Do you hear that in verse 4? That is right there. That's what Jesus says. And oh, how much grief and how much misdirected frustration and how much even anger towards God would, would dissipate and disappear if we grasp this truth that our illnesses and our afflictions and those of those we love are often in their lives for the glory of God. Oh, that we would come away with. If if all we got today was that, the truth of verse 4, it's a great day. It's a great day. 
but there's more. Jesus says, Lazarus is deathly ill, but it's all good. Awesome God things are going to come out of this. And then we read verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Hmm. Now, as you might imagine, Jesus has taken some heat for verse 6. The charge leveled at Jesus is that he is unbelievably insensitive to Martha and Mary and to Lazarus, three people whom he what? He loves. He stays two more days where he's at after he learns about this. With love like that, some say, who needs an enemy, right? Jesus could have made a difference, but instead he hangs out longer, ensuring that Lazarus' death and the two sisters' deep anguish happens. It's not true. It's just not true. For one thing, think, think about this. Jesus didn't even need to go to Bethany to heal Lazarus, right? Would you all agree with me on that? He didn't have to make that day-long trip to Bethany. I mean, he had already demonstrated his power to heal over distances in other situations, other places in the Gospels. We have a record of that. He didn't need to go to Bethany to accomplish the healing of Lazarus if that was his intent. But his intent is not to heal Lazarus. His intent from the very beginning is to do what? Raise him from the dead. There's a huge difference between those two thoughts. Secondly, Jesus didn't purposely hang out extra days to ensure that Lazarus would die. That is the charge, but that is not true. If we do the math, now just follow me here for a second. If we do the math, Lazarus dies the very same day that the messenger arrives to give Jesus the news. Perhaps Lazarus is even dead before the messenger arrives. Then Jesus waits two more days, and after that, which would be day four, he makes the day-long journey back to Bethany, arriving in the late afternoon. That's what verse 17 tells us. Now when Jesus came... He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb, how long? For four days. The day that the messenger arrives, two days that he stays, the day that they travel back. So Lazarus is already in the tomb on the day that the messenger arrives. Now, the reason for Jesus' two-day delay is very important. Because there was a belief among some Jewish rabbis, a, a teaching that trickled down to the people which said that the spirit of the person who died lingered over their body until the third day, until well after decomposition of the body had begun. And the belief was that the spirit would potentially re-enter the body if the person revived. But by day three, decomposition would have resulted in the inability of that to happen, and so the per person would be deemed dead. Dead, 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 right? So by day four, all hope of any kind of resuscitation of Lazarus, it's gone. He is dead. That's why Jesus waits. And what this tells us, fellow Christian, is that, is that Jesus is, is, is in absolute, complete control of this entire drama. He isn't late. He wasn't cruel. He isn't uncaring. He is in complete control. 
in the eyes of even the most reluctant skeptic, there, was, there would be no question that Lazarus was dead when Jesus crashes this funeral and raises him back to life. A Middle Eastern funeral lasted seven days. When Jesus arrives on the scene, the mourners have been immersed in their sorrow and their loss for three and a half full days. The, the first person Jesus encounters is Martha, we're told, Eyes are red and puffy. Her face would be pink and swollen from her days of crying. The first words out of her mouth, verse 21, are a rebuke. A rebuke that that no doubt both Mary and she had repeated a hundred times since Lazarus died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Those are the first words that Jesus hears. Mary will say exactly the same thing in verse 32. Neither of them can conceal the depth of their anguish, the disappointment that they have in Jesus at this moment. It must have been like a knife that cut into Jesus' heart as he hears these words, knowing as he does what he's about to do. How hurtful these words would have been. Jesus tells Martha that Lazarus is going to rise again. And she says through her tears, yes, I know, he will rise again at the end of the age, at the resurrection of the righteous. But if you'd only come four days ago, things would be very different right now. You could have made a difference. You you could have healed him. But now he is dead. And, And here's what's implied in Martha's words. Sickness, illness, disease, that's one thing Jesus you, you have the power there, but, but this is death. This is the grave. And this is something entirely different. There's no power, there's no person on the earth greater than the grave. It wins every time no one conquers the grave. That's really what she's saying. And she's convinced of this. And that's confirmed when, we, when Jesus says, roll away the stone... And Martha cries out in verse 39, Oh, Lord, don't do that. Don't do that. The smell will be overwhelming. What is she saying? Death. It wins. There's no conquering death. You could have done something when you were, you know, if you'd have come when he was still alive, but, but that's, that time's passed. And that's when perhaps Jesus, in, in my imagination, took both of Martha's hands into his hands and he looks into her eyes with an incredible compassion and he says to her, Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And with those seven words, brothers and sisters, Jesus crashes this funeral And five amazing, eternity-changing things happen. On your note page, number one, when Jesus crashes crashes this funeral, he confronts the world's greatest problems. That's what he does. And and, and, and what are those? What are the world's greatest problems? What are they? There's, There's three of them. You know what they are? Sin, death, and the grave. Not taxes. Not not taxes. That's a problem. That's a problem. It's coming up quickly. But, <laughs> but that's, not the, that's not the main problem. The three biggest problems in the world, what are they? Sin, death, and the grave. 
Now, the world's greatest problems, we're told, are terrorism, famine, global warming, overpopulation, war, AIDS, poverty, energy, nuclear threats. I mean, the list is as long as our arm, right? These issues are certainly pressing in our day, but they are all issues that are confined and bound by time and space and the material world. They're all locked into our world. The world's greatest problems aren't temporal. They're eternal. Sin, death, and the grave. These are the three problems that no person on the planet gets to escape from. Agreed? Yeah. doesn't matter who you are or what your family tree looks like or what nationality you are or the color of your skin, your economic status, your intellect. None of that matters. Every person has to face the reality of sin in their life and then the resulting consequences of sin, which is death and the grave. If I were allowed to pick only one verse in the Bible, if I could only have one that would summarize the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and I could only have one verse, the verse that I would pick would be Romans 6.23. How does that verse read? Well, it reads like this. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would that be your verse? Yeah, if you thought about it, perhaps it would be. It certainly is mine. What is the wage that sin in your life and in my life pays? What's the wage? It's death, isn't it? It's death. Stated right there. And death means separation. When we die physically, we are separated from all that is life in this world. That's what death does. It separates us physically. It separates us from all that is life in this world. We're cut off from that. We don't get to share in that anymore. Death does that. But the death spoken of here in Romans 6.23 isn't just talking about physical death. It's also talking about spiritual death, which means that we are separated and cut off from God, from Him for eternity. That's spiritual death. And that's the wage that sin pays to every single human being who has ever lived because we're all what? We're all sinners. Every single one of us. That's the wage sin pays. And when Jesus crashes this funeral and says, I am the resurrection and I am the life, he is confronting yours and mine and every other person on the planet's greatest problems. Sin, death, and the grave. And as he does so, he declares the world's greatest truth to us. And what is that truth? Well, it's the truth that sin, death, and the grave don't have to be the end of the story, right? It doesn't have to be that way. There is life beyond the grave through faith in Him. Amen? That's the world's greatest truth, isn't it? Life beyond the grave through faith in Jesus. As Martha stands before Jesus, all the signs of grief visibly etched into her face, Jesus says, Martha, I am not just a way to get resurrection. I am the resurrection. I'm not just a way for you to have eternal life. I am, say it, eternal life. I am life. I am resurrection. I am life. The grave is not the end. Not with 
me here. For hundreds of years before Christopher Columbus was born, the motto of the nation of Spain was non plus ultra. This is a Latin phrase. It means no more beyond. That was the national model, non plus ultra. To the west of Spain lay the vast Atlantic Ocean. The Spaniards believed that there was nothing beyond their shores, that if you sailed to the west, you would eventually fall off the edge of the earth and you would be destroyed. Non plus ultra, no more beyond. That was the national motto. One of the most beautiful monuments erected to honor Christopher Columbus is one that stands in a little town in Spain today. It's actually a huge monument, a sculpture of a giant globe. It's it's more than two stories high. And at the base of the globe is this inscription, non plus ultra, no more beyond. But there is a huge, powerful, muscled lion that is tearing away with his claw the word non so that all you can read is the words more beyond in honor of Christopher Columbus. He had proven that there was more beyond the shores of Spain. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he is saying, there is what? More beyond. There's more beyond. Like the lion destroying the word, no. The lion of Judah erases the reality of death, doesn't he? Through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we can all say with assurance today, plus ultra, right? More beyond. I would invite you to read aloud with me these incredible words out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Can we do that together, church family? Let's do it. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we all say, Amen. Amen. Plus ultra. More beyond. When Jesus crashes this funeral, having confronted the world's greatest problems and declaring the world's greatest truth, he then makes the world's greatest promise. Live even though you what? Even though you die. Live even though you die. Live forever even though you die physically. You know, we're inundated every day with empty promises, aren't we? Every single day. For example, if you watch television this afternoon, you're going to get this message, this promise that says, if you drive this car, you're going to be a chick magnet. (laughs) That is an empty promise. I don't care what car it is, right? Use this hair color and look 20 years younger. No, that won't work. Take this dietary supplement and lose 15 pounds in one week. That's an empty promise. Invest in this product and triple your money overnight. Empty promises. We get them every single day. But not with Jesus, right? Not with Jesus. Jesus says, verse 26, He who believes in me will what? Live. Live. Even though he or she dies. That's not an empty promise. 
And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Why is that true? Why can we bank on that? Because Jesus is alive, right? Because I am resurrection. I am life. You put your faith in me. You live because I live. You rise from the dead because I am resurrection. It was not long after Jesus transforms this funeral into a celebration here in John 11 by raising Lazarus from the dead that he himself goes to the cross and he bears our sin penalty for us. And then what does he do? He dies on that cross. He's put in a tomb. And what happens? Three, three days later, he rises from the dead. Three days. Interesting, right? Why three days? He's addressing the issue of, of the time. Yeah, he's responding to that. But I am resurrection, he says, and I am life. And because I live, you will live too. That's not an empty promise. It's an empty tomb. But it's not an empty promise. Because Jesus is resurrection and life, we will live. Even though he might die physically, we live eternally. World's greatest promise. We get 60, 70, 80 years maybe, right? On this planet, in this tent. But this isn't the real us, is it? This body's not the real you, me. Now the real us lives forever through faith in Jesus. It's the world's greatest promise. But it's only made good. The promise is only made good depending on how we answer the world's most important question. When Jesus crashed Lazarus' funeral and said, I am the resurrection and the life, he asked Martha the most important eternity-impacting question she will ever be asked in her life. What is the question? Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this, that I am resurrection and life? Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said to him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Yes, I do believe. And Jesus would say, right on. <laughs> right on. Stories told about a man in Africa who had encountered missionaries who shared with him the good news of the gospel who Jesus is, what he had done, uh, the cross, the empty tomb, all of that. Convicted of all those truths, he gives his life to Jesus in simple faith. A short time after that, some of his friends are asking him, why did you do that? Why did you give your life to this Jesus? And he said, well, it's, it's like this. Suppose you're going down the road and, and suddenly the road forks in two directions and you don't know which way to go. If you come to the fork in the road and there are two people at the fork of the road, one is dead and one is alive, which one are you going to ask to show you the way? <laughs> well, they said, you're going to ask the one who's alive. And he said, exactly, that's what I did. I asked the one who's alive which way to go. Jesus says, I am resurrection and I am life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Yes, yes you do. It is the most important question that you or I or anyone will ever be asked. No other question in our entire life will even come close to the importance of how we answer this one question. It determines our eternity. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never but the opposite is equally true. He who does not believe in me will not live when he dies. 
And whoever dies refusing to believe in me will never live. What's your answer to the world's most important question? Yes. Yes. If perhaps you are here at the Bible Church today and, and you really haven't settled that question, man, today's the day. And now's the time to answer the question, the most important question you will ever be asked in the world, did Jesus die on a cross and rise from the dead for you? How you answer that question determines your eternity. You know the right answer. Yes, Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. Victor over sin, death, and the grave over my sin. And he has promised me eternal life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, there's one more thing that Jesus does when he crashes his funeral, and that is he issues the world's most powerful command. And let's not miss this. Beginning at verse 37, the people gathered for Lazarus' funeral see Jesus, and they start whispering among themselves, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They're kind of whispering. He could have done something if he had been here. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So he took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. This is a shout. This is a shout. Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, this is the world's greatest command. Unbind him and let him go. Right? Come out of that tomb. Unbind him and let him go. What an incredible moment. What a miraculous sight. A once man dead is al- a man once dead is alive again, and Jesus says, Get him out of those clothes. Right now, get him out of those clothes. Those are the dressings of the dead, and Lazarus isn't dead anymore. Get him out of those clothes. Fellow Christian, listen to me carefully. I would submit to you that the raising of Lazarus is a physical picture of what took place the day you said, I believe. I believe it's a picture of that. Jesus knew we were dead. We were dead in our sin. He knew the wage that every sin in our life was paying. It was death and an eternity separated from God. He knew that a dark grave separated us from an eternity with with the God who loves us. But because he is resurrection, because he is life, Jesus stands outside the tomb of our life and he shouts, come out. Come out of there. Come out of your unbelief. Come out of that deadness. Come out. And you, what did you do? You believed, right? You believed. And you came out and you breathed the air of eternal life through faith in Jesus, right? And he spoke that command, and it changed your life. It's changed your eternity. Take off those grave clothes and let 
And then you put your name in that space. Take off those grave clothes and let her go. Take off those grave clothes and let him go. Because he's not dead. She's not dead anymore. Let's say it together, church family. Let's put up the, the next slide. Let's say this together. Let's read it aloud together as if we really believe it because we do, right? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yes. Yes. Amen and amen. We are going to celebrate the Lord's table on the heels of that great declaration together. So would you bow with me and we will come to the table and honor our God and celebrate our risenness in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, this, is, this has just been a sweet time together in your word. We thank you for it. We thank you for this, this moment in time, Lord Jesus, when you, uh, you, you crashed a funeral and you changed, you changed our eternity through the truths that we've shared together. We just say thanks so much. But all that we've talked about is only made possible because you went to the cross. You paid our sin debt. And you conquered death in the grave and sin. And we want to remember that. At your command, you you gave this command that we would remember you through the bread and through the cup. And so we come to you now. It's a sacred moment. This is this is not this is this is a most serious time for you. But it's a it's a table reserved for all who know you, who love you in faith. May we honor you greatly as we share the table together. And all God's people said. Amen and amen. I'll ask the men who will help to serve you this morning if they would come forward. And as they serve you, church family, if you'll take the the bread and the cup and just hold it, and then we'll all uh, partake of it together. This moment belongs to anybody who has made confession of faith in Jesus. This This is for you. If you have not come to that place yet, then I would just encourage you to Continue your search. Continue to understand who Jesus is. And not not take uh, of the communion. Because that would not be right for you to do that before the Lord. So so if you know Jesus, this, this moment belongs to you. And if you don't, don't leave today without us helping you to know who Jesus is. Let's uh, sing together as we pass the communion.